Part two, chapter twenty of the story of the Barbary Corsairs by Stanley Lane Poole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James K. White. Chapter twenty, the United States and Tripoli, eighteen o three to eighteen o five. These dark days of abasement were pierced by one ray of sunlight. The United States refused the tribute demanded by the Barbary rovers. From its very birth, the new nation had, in common with all other maritime countries, accepted as a necessary evil a practice it was now full time to abolish. As early as 1785, the day of Algiers found in American commerce a fresh field for his ploughing and of all traders none proved so welcome as that which boasted of its shipping yet carried not an ounce of shot to defend it hesitating protests and negotiations were essayed in vain until at last public opinion was so aroused by the sufferings of the captives as to demand of congress the immediate construction of a fleet ill news travels apace and the rumours of these preparations echoed so promptly among the white walls of algiers that the day hastened to conclude a treaty and so long before the frigates were launched immunity was purchased by the payment of a heavy tribute like all cowardly compromises this one shaped itself into a two-edged sword and soon every rover from mogador to the gates of the bosphorus was clamoring for backsheesh in eighteen hundred yusuf the pasha of tripoli threatened to slip his falcons upon the western quarry unless presents similar to those given by england france and spain were immediately sent him he complained that the american government had bribed his neighbors the cutthroats of tunis at a higher price and he saw no reason why like his cousin of algiers he should not receive a frigate as hush money his answer to a letter of the president containing honeyed professions of friendship was amusing we would ask he said that these your expressions be followed by deeds and not by empty words you will therefore endeavor to satisfy us by a good manner of proceeding but if only flattering words are meant without performance every one will act as he finds convenient we beg a speedy answer without neglect of time as a delay upon your part cannot but be prejudicial to your interests the bay of tunis made demands no less arrogant he declared that Denmark, Spain, Sicily, and Sweden had made concessions to him, and then he announced, It would be impossible to keep peace longer unless the President sent him without delay ten thousand stand of arms and forty cannons of different caliber, and all these last, he added with a fine hibernicism, must be twenty-four pounders. Algiers hinted that her money was in arrears, and Morocco intimated that her delay in arranging terms was due simply to the full consideration which she was giving to a matter so important whatever other faults yusuf of tripoli may have had he was in this matter as good as his word and the six months notice having been fruitless he proclaimed war on may fourteenth eighteen o one by chopping down the flagstaff of the american consulate but the government of the united states was weary of the old traditions followed by christendom in its dealings with these swashbucklers they had by this time afloat a small but effective squadron and were very proud of the successes it had gained in the quasi-war with france just ended they were tired also of a policy which was utterly at odds with their boast that all men were born free and equal and the nation was roused with the shibboleth that there were millions for defence but not one cent for tribute 
when the excitement had cooled however it seemed as if there was as usual to be more in the promise than in the performance for though a force existed sufficient for vigorous and decisive action nothing was accomplished during two years and more of the three squadrons sent out the first under dale was hampered by the narrow restrictions of the president's orders due to constitutional scruples as to the propriety of taking hostile measures before congress had declared war and the second was unfortunate in its commander though individual deeds reflected the greatest credit upon many of the subordinate officers in eighteen o three the third squadron assembled at gibraltar under the broad pennant of commodore edward preble and then at last came the time for vigorous measures the flag officer's objective point was tripoli but hardly were his ships gathered for concerted action when the philadelphia thirty-six guns captured off the coast of spain the meshboa an armed cruiser which belonged to morocco and had in company as prize the boston brig celia of course it was of the highest importance to discover upon what authority the capture had been made but the moorish commander lied loyally and swore that he had taken the celia in anticipation of a war which he was sure had been declared because of the serious misunderstanding existing when he was last in port between his emperor and the american consul this story was too improbable to be believed and captain bainbridge of the philadelphia threatened to hang as a common pirate the mendacious rees ibrahim luberes unless he showed his commission when the rover saw this menace did not issue in idleness he confessed he had been mistaken and that he had been ordered by the governor of tangiers to capture american vessels this made the matter one which required decisive action and so the prize was towed to gibraltar and preble sailed for tangiers to demand satisfaction there was the usual interchange of paper bullets and of salutes but in the end the aggressive commodore prevailed the emperor expressed his regret for the hostile acts and disowned them he punished the marauders released all vessels previously captured agreed to ratify the treaty made by his father in seventeen eighty six and added that his friendship for america should last forever this affair being settled preble detailed the philadelphia and vixen for the blockade of tripoli and then as the season was too advanced for further operations began preparations for the repairs and equipment needed for the next season the work assigned to the philadelphia and vixen was rigorous for the coast fretted with shoals reefs and unknown currents and harassed by sudden squalls strong gales and bad holding grounds demanded unceasing watchfulness and rendered very difficult the securing of proper food and ship stores from the distance of the supplying base bad as this was in the beginning it became worse when in october the vixen sailed eastward in search of a tripolitan cruiser which was said to have slipped past the line at night for then the whole duty mainly inshore chasing fell to the deep draught frigate it was while thus employed that she came to misfortune as cooper writes in his history of the united states navy towards the last of october the wind which had been strong from the westward for some time previously drove the philadelphia a considerable distance to the eastward of the town and on monday october the thirty first as she was running down to her station again with a fair breeze about nine in the morning a vessel was seen inshore and to windward standing for tripoli sail was made to cut her off believing himself to be within long gunshot a little before eleven and seeing no other chance of overtaking the stranger in the short distance that remained 
Captain Bainbridge opened fire in the hope of cutting something away. For near an hour longer, the chase and the fire were continued, the lead, which was kept constantly going, giving from seven to ten fathoms, and the ship hauling up and keeping away as the water shoaled or deepened. At half-past eleven, Tripoli then being in plain sight, distant a little more than a league, satisfied that he could neither overtake the chase nor force her ashore, Captain Bainbridge ordered the helm a port to haul directly off the land into deep water. The next cast of the lead, when this order was executed, gave him but eight fathoms, and this was immediately followed by casts that gave seven and six and a half. At this moment the wind was nearly a beam, and the ship had eight knots way upon her. When the cry of half six was heard, the helm was put hard down, and the yards were ordered to be braced sharp up. While the ship was coming up fast to the wind, and before she had lost her way, she struck a reef forwards, and shot on it until she lifted between five and six feet. Every effort was made to get her off, but in vain. The noise of the cannonading brought out nine gunboats, and then, as if by magic, swarms of wreckers slipped by the inner edge of the shore, stole from some rocky inlet, or rushed from mole and galley, and keeping beyond range, like vultures near a battlefield, awaited the surrender of the ship. A gallant fight was made with the few guns left mounted, but at last the enemy took up a position on the ship's weather quarter, where her strong heel to port forbade the bearing of a single piece. The gunboats, continues the historian, were growing bolder every minute, and night was at hand. Captain Bainbridge, after consulting again with his officers, felt it to be an imperious duty to haul down his flag, to save the lives of his people. Before this was done, the magazines were drowned, holes were bored in the ship's bottom, the pumps were choked, and everything was performed that it was thought would make sure the final loss of the vessel. About five o'clock, the colors were lowered. The ship was looted, the officers and men were robbed, half-stripped in some cases and that night the crew was imprisoned in a foul tripolitan den. Within a week, the rovers, aided by favorable winds and unusual tides, not only got the Philadelphia afloat, but, as the scuttling had been hastily done, towed her into port, and weighed all the guns and anchors that lay in shallow water on the reef. The ship was immediately repaired, the guns were remounted, and the gallant but unfortunate Bainbridge had the final misery of seeing his old command safely moored off the town, and about a quarter of a mile from the Pasha's castle. Preble heard of this catastrophe from an English frigate to which he spoke off Sardinia on his way to Tripoli. The blow was a severe one, for the ship represented over one-third of his fighting force, and the great number of captives gave the enemy a material and sentimental strength which he would be sure to use pitilessly in all future negotiations. But the energetic sailor was only stimulated by the disaster to greater exertions, and plans were immediately made for the destruction of the captured ship. Fortunately, there was no lack of material, and in selecting the leaders it became an embarrassment to decide between the claims of the volunteers. Finally, the choice fell upon Lieutenant Stephen Decatur. He was at this time twenty-four years of age, and had by his marked qualities so distinguished himself as to have been appointed to the command of the Enterprise. To great prudence, self-control, and judgment, he united the dash, daring, and readiness of resources which have always characterized the famous sailors of the world. 
and in the victory which made his name renowned in naval annals he displayed these qualities in such a high degree as to deserve the greatest credit for what he achieved as well as for what under great temptation he declined to do after taking on board a load of combustibles the intrepid sailed from syracuse for tripoli upon the third of february eighteen o four the ketch itself had a varied history for she was originally a french gun vessel which had been captured by the english in egypt and presented to tripoli and which finally was seized by decatur while running for constantinople with a present of female slaves for the grand vizier the brig siren lieutenant charles stewart commanding convoyed the expedition and had orders to cover the retreat and if feasible to assist the attack with its boats in affairs of this kind personal comfort is always the least consideration but had not the weather been pleasant the hardships endured might seriously have affected the success of the enterprise the five commissioned officers were crowded in the small cabin the midshipmen and pilot on one side and the seamen upon the other were stowed like herrings upon a platform laid across water casks whose surface they completely covered when they slept and at so small a distance below the spar deck that their heads would reach it when seated to these inconveniences were added the want of any room for exercise on deck the attacks of innumerable vermin which their predecessors the slaves had left behind them and as the salted meat put on board had spoiled the lack of anything but biscuits to eat and water to drink after a voyage of six days the town was sighted but strong winds had rendered the entrances dangerous and the heavy gale which came with night drove the americans so far to the eastward before it abated that they found themselves fairly embayed in the gulf of cedra on the afternoon of the sixteenth tripoli was once more made out and as the wind was light the weather pleasant and the sea smooth decatur determined to attack that night by arrangement the siren kept almost out of sight during the day and her appearance was so changed as to lull all suspicion of her true character the lightness of the wind allowed the ketch to maintain the appearance of an anxious desire to reach the harbor before night without bringing her too near to require any other change than the use of drags in this case buckets towed astern which could not be seen from the city the crew was kept below excepting six or eight persons at a time so that inquiry might not be awakened by unusual numbers and such men remained on deck as were dressed like maltese when the philadelphia was sighted no doubt was left of the hazardous nature of the attack for she lay a mile within the entrance riding to the wind and abreast of the town her foremast which was cut away while on the reef had not yet been replaced her main and mizzen masts were housed and her lower yards were on the gunwales the lower standing rigging however was set up and her battery was loaded and shotted she lay within short range of the guns on the castle on the molehead and in the new fort and close aboard rode three tripolitan cruisers and twenty gunboats and galleys to meet and overcome this force decatur had a few small guns and seventy men but these were hearts of oak tried in many a desperate undertaking and burning now to redeem their country's honor as the intrepid drew in with the land they saw that the boiling surf of the western passage would force them to select the northern entrance which twisted and turned between the rocks and the shoals it was now nearly ten o'clock and as the ketch drifted in before the light easterly breeze she seemed a modest traitor bent upon barter and laden with anything but the hopes of a nation 
The night was beautiful. A young moon sailed in the sky. The lights from wall and tower and town and from the ships lazily rocking at the anchorages filled the water with a thousand points of fire. The gentle breeze wafted the little craft, past reefs and rocks into the harbor noiselessly, save for the creaking of the yards, the complaining of the block, the wimple of wavelets at the bow, and the gurgle of eddies at the pentals and under the plashing counter. On deck forward, only a few figures were silhouetted against the background of white wall and grayish sky, and aft, Decatur and the pilot stood conning the ship as it stole slowly for the frigate's bow. Owing to the catch's native rig, and to the glib Tripolitanese of the Sicilian pilot, no suspicion was excited in the Philadelphia's watch by the answer to their hail that she had lost her anchors in a gale, and would like to run a line to the warship and to ride by it through the night. So completely were the Tripolitans deceived that they lowered a boat and sent it with a hawser, while at the same time some of the intrepid's crew leisurely ran afast to the frigate's forechains. As these returned, they met the enemy's boat, took its rope, and passed it into their own vessel. Slowly but firmly it was hauled upon by the men on board, lying on their backs, and slowly and surely the intrepid was warped alongside. But at the critical moment the ruse was discovered, and up from the enemy's decks went the wolf-like howl of Americanos! Americanos! The cry roused the soldiers in the forts and batteries, and the chorus these awakened startled the pasha from his sleep, and thrilled with joy the captive Americans behind their prison walls. In another moment, the intrepid had swung broadside on, and quickly past lashings held the two ships locked in a deadly embrace. Then Decatur's cry of, Board! rang out, and with a quick rush, and the discharge of only a single gun, the decks were gained. The surprise was as perfect as the assault was rapid, and the Tripolitan crew, panic-stricken, huddled like rats at bay, awaiting the final dash. Decatur had early gathered his men aft, stood a moment for them to gain a sight of the enemy, and then, with the watchword Philadelphia, rushed upon the rovers. No defense was made, for, swarming to leeward, they tumbled, in mad affright, overboard, over the bows, through gun-ports, by aid of trailing halyards and stranded rigging, out of the channels, pell-mell by every loophole they went, and then, such as could, swam like water-rats for the friendly shelter of the neighboring war-galleys. One by one the decks and holes were cleared, and in ten minutes Decatur had possession of the ship, without a man killed, and only one slightly wounded. In the positions selected so carefully beforehand, the appointed divisions assembled and piled up and fired the combustibles. Each party acted by itself and as it was ready, and so rapid were all in their movements that those assigned to the afterholds had scarcely reached the cockpit and stern storerooms before the fires were lighted over their heads. Indeed, when the officer entrusted with this duty had completed his task, he found the after-hatches so filled with smoke from the fire in the wardroom and steerage that he was obliged to escape to the deck by the forward ladders. Satisfied that the work was thoroughly done, the Americans leaped upon the intrepid's deck, cut with swords and axes the hawsers lashing them to the Philadelphia, manned the sweeps, and, just as the flames were scorching their own yards and bulwarks, swung clear. 
Then came the struggle for escape. And this last scene can best be told, perhaps, in the words of one of the participants, Commodore Charles Morris, who gave on that night, when he was the first to board the Philadelphia, the earliest proof of the great qualities which afterwards made him one of the first sailors of his time. Up to this time, he wrote, the ships and batteries of the enemy had remained silent, but they were now prepared to act, and when the crew of the Ketch gave three cheers in exultation of their success, they received the return of a general discharge from the enemy. The confusion of the moment probably prevented much care in their direction, and though under the fire of nearly a hundred pieces for half an hour, the only shot which struck the Ketch was one through the topgallant sail. We were in greater danger from the Philadelphia, whose broadsides commanded the passage by which we were retreating, and whose guns were loaded, and discharged as they became heated. We escaped these also, and while urging the catch onwards with sweeps, the crew were commenting upon the beauty of the spray thrown up by the shot between us and the brilliant light of the ship, rather than calculating any danger that might be apprehended from the contact. The appearance of the ship was indeed magnificent, the flames in the interior illuminated her ports, and ascending her rigging and masts, formed columns of fire, which, meeting the tops, were reflected into beautiful capitals, whilst the occasional discharge of her guns gave an idea of some directing spirit within her. The walls of the city and its batteries and the masts and rigging of cruisers at anchor, brilliantly illuminated and animated by the discharge of artillery, formed worthy adjuncts and an appropriate background to the picture. Fanned by a light breeze, our exertions soon carried us beyond the range of their shot, and at the entrance of the harbor we met the boats of the siren, which had been intended to cooperate with us, and whose crew rejoiced at our success, whilst they grieved at not having been able to partake in it. The success of this enterprise added much to the reputation of the Navy, both at home and abroad. Great credit was given, and was justly due to Commodore Preble, who directed and first designed it, and to Lieutenant Decatur, who volunteered to execute it, and to whose coolness, self-possession, resources, and intrepidity its success was, in an eminent degree, due. Commodore Preble, in the meantime, hurried his preparations for more serious work, and on July 25th, arrived off Tripoli with a squadron consisting of the frigate Constitution, three brigs, three schooners, six gunboats, and two bomb vessels. Opposed to him were arrayed over a hundred guns mounted on shore batteries, nineteen gunboats, one ten-gun brig, two schooners mounting eight guns each, and twelve galleys. Between August 3rd and September 3rd, five attacks were made, and though the town was never reduced, substantial damage was inflicted, and the subsequent satisfactory peace rendered possible. Preble was relieved by Barron in September, not because of any loss of confidence in his ability, but from exigencies of the service which forbade the government sending out an officer junior to him in the relief squadron which reinforced his own. Upon his return to the United States he was presented with a gold medal, and the thanks of Congress were tendered him his officers and men, for gallant and faithful services. The blockade was maintained vigorously, and in 1805 an attack was made upon the Tripolitan town of Derna by a combined land and naval force. 
the former being under command of Consul General Eaton, who had been a captain in the American Army, and of Lieutenant O'Banion of the Marines. The enemy made a spirited though disorganized defense, but the shells of the warships drove them from point to point, and finally their principal work was carried by the force under O'Banion and Midshipman Mann. Eaton was eager to press forward, but he was denied reinforcements and military stores, and much of his advantage was lost. All further operations were, however, discontinued in June, 1805, when, after the usual intrigues, delays, and prevarications, a treaty was signed by the Pasha, which provided that no further tribute should be exacted, and that American vessels should be forever free of his rovers. Satisfactory as was this conclusion, the uncomfortable fact remains that tribute entered into the settlement. After all the prisoners had been exchanged man for man, the Tripolitan government demanded, and the United States paid, the handsome sum of $60,000 to close the contract. This treaty, however, awakened the conscience of Europe, and from the day it was signed, the power of the Barbary Corsairs began to wane. The older countries saw their duty more clearly, and ceased to legalize robbery on the high seas. To America, the success gave an immediate position which could not easily have been gained in any other way, and apart from its moral results, the contest with Tripoli was the most potent factor in consolidating the Navy of the United States. End of Part 2, Chapter 20 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista